If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to, uh, to Genesis chapter 29. As we continue in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in Genesis 29, the first 30 verses. And we're going to, uh, we're going to be breaking up the reading. Uh, first, we'll look at the, uh, the first 20 verses, and then we'll come back and, and we'll read uh, later on verses 21 through 30. And in these first 30 verses of Genesis 29, we get to observe the beginning of the, of the fulfillment of God's promises in the life of Jacob, those promises which he gave to him back in chapter 28 that we saw last week, that the Lord said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And at the same time, here in Genesis 29, we start to see that Jacob reaps some of what he has sown. It is here in Genesis 29 that Jacob meets his match, both in the sense of meeting the woman whom he loves and in the sense of meeting someone who can be every bit as deceptive and scheming as he himself has been. So let's look to the text. First, the, uh, the first 20 verses of Genesis 29, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go. Pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone, and my flesh, and he stayed with, with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Now, as we look at these first 20 verses, our main point here will be the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God, because that is what this chapter is showing to us. As we saw in Genesis 28 last week, God had promised Jacob that he would be with him wherever he went, that he would keep him, that he would not leave him until he had accomplished all that he had promised him. And what we see here in Genesis 29 is, as it were, the first installment of that promise. God is being faithful to Jacob. And we see this first in that Jacob arrived at his destination. Verse 1, we're told that he came to the land of the sons of the east. He had come to this well in the field where the shepherds were, and we see from their conversation in verse 4 that these shepherds are from Haran. Jacob had made it to where he was intending to go. God had watched him and kept him and brought him on his journey. And moreover, Jacob inquires about his kinsman, his uncle Laban. Jacob was not only seeking to come to the east, but he was specifically coming to the household of Laban so that he might marry one of Laban's daughters. That was why Isaac had sent him on this journey. And these shepherds knew Laban. They knew that he was doing all right. They knew that things were well with him. And not only did these men know Laban, they also knew the daughter of Laban. And they were able to point out to Jacob that uh, his daughter was coming. They said, verse uh, They said there that uh, here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. And Rachel was a shepherdess, as verse 9 makes clear. In other words, she was a worker. She was involved in the the work of her family. And this is is not a bad thing. Calvin noted this as a virtue and a mark of frugality. He said that Rachel uh, sometimes pays attention to the flock... For since Laban abounds with servants, how does it happen that he employs his own daughter in a vile and sordid service, except that it was deemed disgraceful to educate children in idleness, softness, and indulgence? Laban is not a, not a poor man, but yet he sends his own daughter out there to, to work with the sheep. And this, this is not a bad thing. And I think there's... A lesson for those of us who have children to to learn here in terms of raising up children who will be workers and will be diligent in their work. Now Jacob, for his part, was delighted to meet his cousin. He rolled back the stone from uh, the well in order to proceed with the watering of the sheep. Now, this is probably a pretty, pretty big stone. Likely it would have been rolled away by probably at least two or three men, but Jacob uh, does it all by himself. And he rolls the stone away. He kisses Rachel, and he weeps. No doubt he was joyful that his journey was successful and at an end that he had arrived and had met one of his cousins and his emotions stirred up within him and he weeps. And Rachel then runs off to tell her father Laban about Jacob's arrival. And you can notice how there's something reminiscent in these events of Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham's servant had gone back to Abraham's family in order to take a wife for Isaac. You remember how Rebekah had come out to water the camels? And then, after she had watered the camels, she went back to her family and told them about Abraham's servant. And after she did that, who should come out 
to meet that servant, but Laban. Laban is the one who was, seemed, seemed to be masterminding the matching of Rebekah and Isaac when that servant had come, and Laban here comes out to meet Jacob as well. And Laban comes out and embraces Jacob, kisses him, brings him back home, and according to verse 14, Jacob is there a month. And then in verses 15 through 20, Jacob and Laban strike a deal, a bargain for which Jacob had come. Laban asked about the wages. Just because you're a relative doesn't mean you have to work for free. What should I pay you? And Jacob uh, makes what, at least to my mind, is a, is a pretty high bid, that he would work seven years for Rachel. Now, I'm not saying that Rachel wasn't worth it, but I am saying that it does seem pretty high as far as a bride price is concerned. And Laban, for his part, seems pretty well trained, uh, having a good eye for a financial bargain. I think that's putting it rather mildly. I think Laban is actually a very greedy man, and so he, he agrees. Some have suggested that when Laban said to Jacob there in, uh, in verse 19 that there should be actually an exclamation point at the end. Stay with me. In other words, this is great. Yes, stay here. Work here. Seven years. And, uh, and so Laban is probably, probably pretty excited about this. Now, obviously, we, we all know what is coming. Verse 16 introduces another woman other than Rachel into the picture, and her name is Leah. She's Rachel's older sister. And verse 17 shows the contrast between the two sisters. It is said of Leah here that her eyes were weak. Now, the, the word that's translated in, in English as, as weak could also potentially be translated as tender or delicate. And so there's been a bit of a debate sometimes over whether the intention here is to say that Leah's eyes are particularly unattractive or whether it could possibly mean that her eyes were pretty, but even with that, she wasn't quite what Rachel was, namely that Rachel was beautiful of form and face. One of the Jewish Targums even translated uh, that portion as the eyes of Leah were beautiful. Now, either way one would choose to go, I think that is, the point is perfectly clear, though, that Rachel was the more desirable one, and she was the one that Jacob chose. Jacob loved her so much that those seven years of labor for her seemed but only a few days. Now, in these first 20 verses, we should see here the, the faithfulness of God. God had promised to be with Jacob, and he was with Jacob. God had provided for Jacob's necessities. God had brought him to the right place. Jacob had been sent to marry one of these women, one of these daughters of Laban, and Jacob had made it to the right household. Jacob and Laban had been able to strike a deal in regard to Jacob's desire to marry Rachel. The Lord was providentially working out all of these things so as to bring his promise to fulfillment. And we need to remember for, for Jacob, specifically, that the promise of God given to him in chapter 28, that all nations would be blessed through him and his seed, part of that fulfillment of that promise meant that he had to have a wife and therefore must have children as well. And we see in these developments that the Lord was working toward this very thing. This is the Lord's providential work in the world as he keeps his promises and is bringing his purposes to pass. And though obviously none of us here occupy the position of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the history of redemption, nevertheless the Lord is, is still the same. 
still at work in the world, still providentially bringing his purposes and his promises to pass. And though when we are in the thick of things, it is often difficult to see what the Lord is doing in our lives. And though there is much in the providence of God that is in and of itself ambiguous, nevertheless, we should rest assured that the Lord is still working in the world, that he is still providentially bringing his purposes to pass, that he is still manifesting his faithfulness to his people in all things. And so, beloved, if you are in Christ, please know that all things are working together for your good. Even if you can't understand it, even when you can't understand it. It's been said that there are hard texts, both in the Word of God and in the works of God. Hard texts that we are slow to understand. But in order to strengthen ourselves, when we find ourselves in a position in which trusting the works of God, God's providential dealings with us, is hard, it might be helpful for you from time to time to look back over the past and consider the Lord's faithfulness and His goodness to you. Sometimes it's good to just sit down and think back to what the Lord has done for you in the past so that you can strengthen yourself and stir yourself up to trust Him with regard to the future. Just think, has the Lord not sustained you to this point? Well, He has sustained you. Has He not brought you out of despair before? Has He not strengthened your faith in Christ when your faith was weak and tottering? Has He not been faithful and just to forgive your waywardness? Has He not provided for your needs? Maybe He hasn't given you everything you desired or given it to you when you desired it, but He has provided for you. And you can therefore trust Him to be faithful with regard to the future. The Lord was faithful to Jacob as He was on this journey, and He will likewise prove His faithfulness to all of His people for all time as well. Now, let's look ahead to verses 21 through 30 as we come to our second point, and we'll be uh, much longer here on the second point, which is the law of the harvest. The law of the harvest. Let's pick up reading in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah and served with Laban for another seven years. Now, I venture to say that most of us are pretty well acquainted with the historical event that is related in these verses, but I think we would do well to slow down and think about it in real time 
and just consider what was going on here. We live in a very different time and place, very different customs in regard to marriage and so forth. And so in verse 21, Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife. Now in our circumstances, it would be incorrect for a man to speak of a woman as my wife until the ceremony has been performed and the marriage has been solemnized. You're not married until you say I do and the other party says I do and it is publicly ratified. But betrothal was different then and there. Jacob speaks of Rachel as my wife even before the nuptials have been celebrated. She was, as has been said, his wife by contract. This was a binding agreement, more so than our engagements to be married. Just, just think Matthew chapter 1, Mary and Joseph. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Joseph finds out that she's pregnant, does not want to disgrace her, but plans to send her away secretly. In other words, he didn't want to make a public example out of her, but even still, had he carried through with his plan, it would have been something much different, something much more official than merely the breaking off of an engagement here in our culture here in America. For, for us, if a culture gets engaged and then somebody gets cold feet or has uh, some particular reason why they want to, to back out of the engagement, there's uh, no legalities to be worked through, right? You just say, hey, I'm sorry, we're, we're not going to get married. And the engagement is off. There's no legalities to be worked through, um, at least as far as the engagement itself is concerned, right? You might have some trouble getting your money back from the venue where you'd plan to have the reception or something like that, but no, le no legal trouble as far as uh, any legally binding obligation, binding the two parties to get married. But historically, this, this has not been the case in regard to betrothal. Even in the mid-16th century, the, uh, the French Reformed National Synod of Lyon could give pastoral advice in regard to, to espousal, not, not saying I do, but making promises to, to get married. And they said, wherefore, let the parties look before they leap and be curiously inquisitive about each other before they do mutually oblige themselves. For they must know that this is a contract without repentance unless they be after informed of an error, cheat, or some such like mistake in the person. And again, they're not talking about walking down the aisle and saying, I do. They're talking about espousing someone to yourself, giving promises to be married. They said this is a contract without repentance, unless you can prove that somebody pulled one over on you or something like that. And I think that, that here the situation is at least somewhat similar, that there's a contractual and legally binding element going on here between Jacob and Rachel. And this is significant for us as we seek to understand what happened here. Because the situation was that Jacob and Laban had an agreement, and that agreement was for Jacob to marry Rachel. That was the contract. And after the seven years of service were completed, Jacob presses Laban for his wife now that the bride price has been paid. Jacob gathers the men for the feast to celebrate the marriage, and this seems to have played uh, the role of kind of the public solemnization of the marriage. And in the evening, he gave Leah to Jacob instead of Rachel. Now, we can't say precisely what the customs of the wedding night were at that time and place, but it is conceivable that 
Leah was brought to Jacob after dark and was veiled. It's not like a wedding reception in our country where the couple leaves hand in hand and uh, they're on their way to the honeymoon as soon as the bouquet gets tossed. I think to, to put things in our terms, we might almost say that Jacob was engaged to Rachel, walked down the aisle and said, I do to Rachel, and then under the cover of darkness, Leah was the one who went into the honeymoon suite. I think that might, that might be kind of a rough equivalent in our terms. And when we envision the situation in those terms and place this scenario in its context in the ancient Near East, the ethical dilemma faced by Jacob becomes a little bit more clear when the morning light comes and he sees that it was Leah and not Rachel. Just what exactly was he supposed to do in order to sort this out? Laban had tricked him and Leah had cooperated with the plan. Some have suggested that Leah's conduct here was no better than that of an adulteress. Just what ought one to do under the circumstances? Now, we know what Jacob did, but what exactly should he have done? Calvin said that although necessity may in some degree excuse the fault of Jacob, it cannot altogether absolve him from blame, for he might have dismissed Leah because she had not been his lawful wife because the mutual consent of the man and the woman, respecting which mistake is impossible, constitutes marriage. But Jacob reluctantly retains her as wife, from whom he was released and free, and thus doubles his fault by polygamy and trebles it by an incestuous marriage. My sense is that it probably would have been best for him to send Leah away and marry Rachel, but that may not have been a course of action which seemed viable to him, and indeed, it may not have been viable at all, given the uncle with whom he was dealing. And it may be that such a course of action never even occurred to his mind. John Gill went so far as to say that indeed Jacob was under some necessity of marrying both sisters, since the one was ignorantly defiled by him and the other was his wife by espousal and contract. And though he had served seven years for her, he could not have her without consenting to marry the other and fulfilling her week and serving seven years more. To such hard terms was he obliged by an unkind uncle in a strange country and destitute. Now we are absolutely right to abhor polygamy, but we need to understand that life was really messy here for Jacob. And though we may well find fault with Jacob for his conduct here, there is greater blame to lay on Laban and perhaps on Leah also for her collusion with her father's plan. All things considered, it's easy, isn't it, to see some pretty strong family resemblances in this picture. Laban, in a way, plays the part here that his sister Rebekah had played in the deceit of Isaac. Laban schemed and incorporated one of his children into the plan and secured her cooperation to go along with the plan in order to deceive Jacob, just like Rebekah had schemed and incorporated one of her children into her scheme and secured Jacob's cooperation to go along with the plan in order to deceive Isaac. Here in chapter 29, Leah plays the part which her cousin Jacob had played back in chapter 27. Think about what happened when Jacob stole the blessing. Jacob was impersonating a sibling. 
He had taken advantage of a situation where sight was limited, where Isaac could not see to determine the deception, and he had done so in order to obtain something beneficial to himself, namely to obtain the blessing from his father Isaac. Leah here too follows in similar fashion. She impersonated her sibling. She took advantage of a situation where sight was limited, where Jacob could not discern her true identity in the dark of night, and thus could not discern the fraud until the morning light was upon them. And she did this, at least likely, in order to obtain something beneficial to herself, namely, to obtain a husband. She wasn't the beauty of the family, and so she cooperated with her father's plan to get a husband by deceit. She obeyed her father in this, just as Jacob had obeyed his mother in the deceit of Isaac. It's all, as they say, in the family. It's all in the family. Matthew Henry rightly observed that it is easy to observe here how Jacob was paid in his own coin. He had cheated his own father and pretended to be Esau, and now his father-in-law cheated him. Even the righteous, if they take a false step, are sometimes thus recompensed on earth. And what we have here, then, is an example of someone reaping what he has sown. The law of the harvest. Paul tells us of that, and we read that together in Galatians 6 this morning, where he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, though the immediate context there in Galatians 6 may be pointing to a specific area, nevertheless, this law of the harvest is something that applies broadly across the board. So Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be mistaken about this. Don't think for a moment that you can mock God and get away with it. It won't happen. A man reaps what he sows. In Galatians 6, Paul is making the point that consistent sowing to the flesh leads to corruption, that is, to judgment. But if we sow to the Spirit, then from the Spirit we reap eternal life. We reap what we sow, and we understand Paul's meaning there. When you plant green beans in the garden, you don't go out looking for pumpkins. You're very foolish if you do. If you plant tomatoes, you don't go looking for strawberries. We understand that in the context of a garden, there's a direct correspondence between what goes into the ground and what comes out of the ground. It makes sense. And this is the same in the spiritual realm also. The one who sows to the flesh, from the flesh, reaps corruption. And the reason for this is because sowing to the flesh means living in sin. Living in sin is incompatible with a new life and a new heart through faith in Jesus Christ. If we consistently and only sow to the flesh, we're simply proving that we're not believers in Christ at all. It's just like Paul had said earlier in Galatians, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, where he listed out the, the deeds of the flesh, 15 items in the list, and he said, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's the same thing in Galatians 6. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. In other words, if you consistently sow to the flesh with no repentance, you prove that you're not a Christian and you reap the destruction 
that you have sown. The destruction that you reap in that situation begins here in the world and then continues on into eternity. Just think for a moment about the earthly consequences that accompany sin. Sexual promiscuity, drug and alcohol abuse, laziness, stealing, lying, murdering, and so on, all have detrimental consequences here in this life. Right? You, can, you can think through that list and look at the consequences that accompany those things here in this life. And that is to say nothing of the life to come. Nothing of the judgment of God which follows our lives here. Sowing to the flesh often feels good in the moment. We probably wouldn't sow to the flesh if it didn't feel good to us. But it doesn't last. The pleasure is only temporary and then comes the pain. The truth is that the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the contrast is that those who sow to the Spirit from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, those who walk by the Spirit bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, and those are the ones who reap eternal life. And this is Paul's way of saying, in a way, that faith without works is dead. If you do not sow to the Spirit, and that is your consistent mode of operation, you're only proving that you don't belong to Christ, because those who belong to Christ sow to the Spirit. They bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. And with that said, we need to be abundantly clear that sowing to the Spirit does not earn us eternal life. Because if the book of Galatians is clear about anything, it's clear that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Sowing to the Spirit is simply the fruit of the Spirit, which is produced in the life of a Christian. True faith produces works, faith working by love. The works are simply the natural outflow of true faith. The Spirit creates that faith in us and then... We seek, by God's grace, to bring forth fruit and to walk in that path. But our problem, problem with everyone in this world, is that left to ourselves, we sow to the flesh and only to the flesh. And we do not sow to the Spirit. And as such, we all deserve to, to reap that corruption that Paul warns us about. Namely, condemnation and judgment. But thanks be to God that the glory of the gospel is that God has made a way by which those who have sown to the flesh, by which sinners might escape the judgment that we deserve. That is the way of the cross, the way of the substitutionary atonement of Christ in which Jesus reaps what we have sown as he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And in a way, which we reap what Jesus has sown. We receive his righteousness. Think 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ takes our sin, we take his righteousness. And so for those who come to Christ, there is, there's a tweak in the, in the law of the harvest, right? Because Christ takes our punishment upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. But nevertheless, for all who come to Christ, we're reminded that we must live our lives no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. 
But, and so that's, that's broadly speaking in terms, of, in terms of salvation and judgment. But what we need to note here from Genesis 29 is that even for believers, there can be just consequences which we, which we receive for our sins here in this world. Though Jacob certainly did sow to the flesh in uh, getting the, uh, the birthright from Esau at the end of chapter 25 and in tricking Isaac chapter 27, by the grace of God, Jacob trusted in the Lord and was thus forgiven and uh, did not from his flesh reap corruption in the full and final sense of eternal judgment. He was saved, he was forgiven. And so he didn't reap eternal corruption despite his sinful sowing, but he did reap what he had sown here in an earthly sense, even though he was a believer in the Lord. And as we've seen, there were some rather eerie similarities between his own conduct and the conduct of his father-in-law, and that of Leah toward him. Again, as Matthew Henry said, even the righteous, if they take a false step, are sometimes thus recompensed on the earth. We read in Proverbs 26, 27, that he who digs a pit will fall into it. And when he rolls a stone, he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. And we need to be clear that sometimes, not infallibly, but sometimes, this happens in the earthly experience of the life of believers. Sometimes in the righteous judgment of God, these kinds of things do come upon the children of God who have been forgiven of their sin, but nevertheless must endure the discipline and chastisement of their Heavenly Father. Sometimes even the saints must bear up under this kind of thing. This is what happened to Jacob here. And I think we see the, the same kind of thing on a, on a greater and more terrible scale in the life of King David. David chose the path of immorality with Bathsheba and murder with respect to Uriah. And though David confessed his sin to Nathan the prophet on the spot when Nathan came to reprove him, and even though Nathan told him, 2 Samuel 12, 13, the Lord also has taken away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, there were still consequences from that sin. In this particular case, the child who was conceived in adultery died, and David had to live the rest of his life with those haunting words of 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 12, where the word of the Lord came through Nathan, and he said, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And you know how the story goes from there. It's a sad story in which David had reaped what he had sown. There was Amnon and Tamar, and then Absalom killed Amnon. Absalom rebelled against his father, takes his father's concubine, subsequently gets killed in battle. This was a mess, all of it. But it was David reaping what he had sown. It was a case in which even a godly and believing man was reaping what he had sown even after he had been assured that the Lord had taken away his sin. He was forgiven. No condemnation in the court of heaven for his sin. Nevertheless, there were earthly consequences on account of his sin. And you and I, as believers, must 
not suppose that we are immune to this. Now, we can and should praise God that this does not always and infallibly happen to believers. But we must not suppose that our loving Lord is cruel or heartless when he does chastise us by causing us to be on the receiving end of the same kind of mischief which we have caused others over the years. The Lord is just in these things. And we must consider that he is always righteous in his dealings with us. His chastisements are always just. And they are for our good. We find in Hebrews 12.10 that he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. In his discipline, he shows us the folly of sin. How foolish it is. He shows us the sinfulness of sin. How truly wicked it is. He shows us that the wages of sin is ultimately death. He shows us that his ways are better. And that therefore we must walk in them. And moreover, this law of the harvest, that we reap what we sow, should serve to instruct us to sow in the right way. To sow to the Spirit instead of sowing to the flesh. Praise God that we have examples in Scripture and history, both good examples and bad examples. Because from the bad examples, we can see how this stuff goes down. We can read it and see it without having to experience it for ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10.11 is following on the heels of a bunch of bad Old Testament examples and says that these things were written for us on whom the ends of the ages have come. And so we should read the example of Jacob and take warning against lying and deception. We should read the example of David and take warning against immorality and murder. We should read the example of that wilderness generation there those 40 years and take warning against idolatry and grumbling and putting the Lord to the test and so on. The lesson which shines through in these things is that which our Lord Jesus spoke to that lame man whom he had healed at Bethesda in John chapter 5 when he said, Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The lesson is that we must turn away from our sin, we must repent, we must find new life in Christ, and then subsequently live for Him, live for the will of God, sowing to the Spirit because of the work of the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. And we can praise God for, again, for His great faithfulness, the way that He works in the world, ultimately working out all things for good. And even here, as we'll see as the book of Genesis continues and as we think ahead, as the scriptures point us to Christ, even here in this mess of things, the Lord was still working, even in a very broken and even among great wickedness, the Lord was still working his purposes ultimately to bring Christ into the world, bringing salvation to sinners like us. Let's praise him for that. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your mercy to sinners like us, we praise you for the warnings of Scripture, and Lord, we pray that we would take those to heart, that we would sow to the Spirit, that we would, by your grace, bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, that we would abide in Christ and He in us, and that we would walk with Him. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we would walk with you this week, that we would serve you and glorify you and honor you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.